Aloha, and welcome to SUP FM, the podcast for stand-up paddleboarders everywhere. So with no further ado, let's get out on the water and on with the show. Hello, and welcome back to SUP FM. And today we're featuring a bunch of people who are working together on something which really shows up the aloha spirit that runs through this sport at every level and is also a sign of how much stand-up paddle is making a real difference across society. Today I'm talking to a group from the University of Portsmouth who have got together across disciplines to measure and to research the advantages and the benefits of stand-up paddleboarding for the body, the mind and also the marine environment. And I also got to chat with the locally based SUP brand Fatstick who have really thrown themselves into this collaboration and are working in various ways to support the studies. But before we hear from the team, they're currently conducting a survey as part of the research and they really want you to get involved. So if you are listening to this in March 2021 and wherever you are in the world, they would love you to fill out that survey. And the link to the survey is in the show notes. So this project brings together a bunch of disciplines. And the first member of the team I got to speak to was Professor Alex Ford. And I started by asking him about his water sports background and how he got started with SUP. Yeah, I grew up in South Wales where there's some good surf and surfed from early years the way up until my 30s and stopped and missed being on the water. And it wasn't until lockdown last year in 2020 and with all covid that i got myself my first paddleboard and got out on the water like many people started it for the first time and it reinvigorated my my passion for being on the board and on the water fantastic so uh, tell us about your first experience on a paddleboard because it's a bit different to being on a surfboard i guess you've got some pretty decent balance there though annoyingly i was rubbish <laughs> and i, I I, I, I don't know, probably arrogantly thought, having surfed for over two decades on many different boards, that I would actually be quite good. I, to give myself a, a little bit of excuse, I, I had snapped my Achilles tendon a year before, so my balance wasn't quite as good and my ankle not quite as strong. But it, the, the idea of standing directly forward, feet next to each other, rather than in a more surfing stance, I was I was naturally trying to go into a surfing stance and go back into a step back turn <laughs> whereas I it just felt incredibly uncomfortable <laughs> sitting midpoint on the board with my feet next to each other trying to paddle going forward yeah but flexibility I know snap your Achilles tendon isn't the best is it it tends to be a little tighter but it sounds like you skip directly to phase two of training rather than um, <laughs> phase one but yeah. um I'm glad that um, so many people you, you've taken up the sport and spotted the opportunities. The, the reason for for bringing you on and, and having a chat is is your professional work. Could you just tell us a bit about your academic work at the University of Portsmouth and how that ties into stand up paddling? I am a, a professor of biology, and, and my expertise, if you like, is in marine biology and the impacts of humans on oceans. We study all types of pollution 
from chemical pollution and my colleagues study things like noise pollution and experiments that we have go on can be studying things from plastics in the ocean the way through to pharmaceuticals such as antidepressants and headache tablets and contraceptive pill coming out through sewage effluent right the way through to illegal drugs like cocaine also coming out in pollution and what the impacts that is having on marine life. Mm -hmm. So you really kicked off the enthusiasm of the University of Portsmouth and there are various different groups within the university that are involving themselves in stand-up paddleboarding or who have spotted the opportunities from stand-up paddleboarding. Can you tell me a bit about that conversation and how that whole process kicked off? Sure. Over the years, we've had a number of different adventurers and ocean ambassadors come to us as a university and asking for our expertise because they might want to be setting off doing a world record attempt sailing around the world or something. And they don't want to do it just for the record. They want to do some science en route and help the environment. So we've set up projects with them where they might be trying to measure plastic or noise pollution as they're going around the world. Last year, the GB Row team were interested in measuring plastic and noise pollution as they were trying to break the world record rowing around Great Britain. So we had the idea of, okay, these are elite sports people doing quite adventurous things. It would be great if we could package this in a way that your average sailor or your average paddleboarder could be doing as well. So we've been involved with projects where we try and use citizen scientists to make use of their paddle boards as platforms of opportunities. Hiring out a research vessel is incredibly expensive, but I just thought with the technology getting smaller and cheaper, if we can get some of this technology on people's paddle boards, incorporate it into their fins, for instance, we could have people all over the world recording the health of the ocean in a way that could be uploaded onto a cloud somewhere and, and, and then scientists can analyze that data, whether it be chemical data, noise data, or, or if in some ways just visual data, if we can get cameras on the fronts of boards as well. Mm -hmm. So that, how is the technology on that at the moment? How it, does that technology exist? Do, do those opportunities exist or is that still in development? The technology exists for doing the sound. In the past, the, the hydrophones were quite expensive and they were quite large. That, that technology has come right down in size and in price. So we now think there is something probably about the size of a, of a mobile phone, potentially, that it could now be used to measure sound underwater and either slotted, incorporated into a fin or somehow slotted into a US box or something like that in the same way, or, or even just dangled over the side of a boat or a paddleboard. The In terms of the, the chemical analysis, that is the next step we would like to do. There are people out there that are developing sensors that can measure the water quality in real time. If we can somehow team up with those companies and get that onto your everyday paddleboarders board, then I think we, we're really in a unique position then where we can get the people out there on, on the water measuring the health of, of the oceans whilst they're doing it. And it really is that chemical aspect, which, I mean, not to you because you do this day in, day out, but to the layperson, to the, the paddleboarder out there, 
it tends to be a bit of a forgotten area for the most part because there are a lot of initiatives out there to to clear the very visible stuff, the plastic bags and the, the other litter and so on, which absolutely is a very worthy thing to be uh, dealing with and very practical. And it causes a huge amount of, of damage to, to wildlife and the, the environment. But you deal specifically, as you mentioned earlier on, with the chemicals and the antidepressants and the effluent and the, the contraceptive pills and so on. What, what sort of effect can that have on wildlife practically out there? That's you're bang on there. That's the problem is people are very switched on and they've been great in changing their behavior when it's come to plastic pollution because it's, it's very visual for them to see. And, and, and there are things that they can action and change their behaviors to to reduce the amount of plastic they use. A lot of the chemicals that we measure are not visible. They're in quite small concentrations in the environment. You can't see them. They're dissolved in the water, but they don't need to be there in particularly high concentrations to have effects on wildlife. Because very often those chemicals were designed to be biologically active. For instance, the, the drugs that were designed to help us as pharmaceutical drugs, we don't need to take them in very high concentrations for, to have their effects on us. So if you were to cage a fish downstream of a sewage treatment plant, sewage treatment plants were designed to get rid of the fecal matter, not necessarily all the chemicals that, that come through a sewage treatment plant. A lot of the drugs we take come, come out the other side practically unchanged or, or not reduced very by very much. A fish would feminize if it was exposed to estrogens downstream of a sewage treatment plant. And one of the things that we're looking at is whether some of the drugs, such as antidepressants, which are obviously taken to help change behaviors and alleviate depression and various different things, they, they change the behavior in wildlife as well. But when we don't know what the effects those could be. Mm-hmm. So in terms of, obviously, that's a, a really difficult thing to manage. I guess you, you've got the two aspects if you need antidepressants and same for the other elements. I guess it comes down to changing the the processing of, of those sorts of, of things so that when it does get fed back into the rivers, it doesn't have that effect. Is that the sort of strategy? What sort of things can be done to practically influence this? Infrastructure is is certainly the main one, and that there is technologies out there, and you can advance sewage treatment plants so they they do extract more of these nasty chemicals out during the process, but they're expensive, so it, it could cost countries billions to upgrade their sewage treatment plants to the state where they're removing lots of these chemicals. So obviously, there's a political decision: what is the best use of taxpayers' money in spending this, and Certainly in the UK at the moment, we have a problem with stormwater overflows. So very often when it rains heavily, the, the sewage systems don't cope. So they have an overflow mechanism where a lot of the sewage goes out completely untreated, either into rivers or into the coasts. So that is an issue. So it's whether we need to redesign our infrastructure in a way that that doesn't happen so often. On a behavioral level, some people just throw their leftover pills down the toilet. So that the best thing would be to take their leftover or out-of-date unused uh, pills back to a pharmacist and then they can be disposed of appropriately. In the UK, we don't do that very often as consumers. I think it's less than 10% of people take their waste pharmaceuticals back to a a pharmacist to, to be disposed of. Most people probably either chuck them in the bin or put them down the toilet. And either way, if it's going to landfill, it might eventually leak out a long time down the road. 
or if it goes in the toilet, it's just going to end up in a sewage treatment plant just in the same way it does after you've consumed it. Mm, that's incredible. I, d- I really didn't uh, consider um, that effect. I mean, but in terms of like policy and so on, and particularly the, the sort of storm behaviour, I know as a sort of sub surfer, it's something that, that me and people on my lineup are particularly interested in because we're near a output of a river and and we get the information from surfers against sewage or that that warning that uh, if we fall in we need to keep our mouths securely (laughs) shut have you worked with surfers against sewage because they're they're one of the the leading proponents of managing this sort of problem aren't they Uh, i haven't personally worked with them i i was i was based in plymouth around about the time they were just starting up over 20 years ago and, and they've done a fantastic job of lobbying the, the government in the UK on a number of issues relating to, to water quality. And uh, yeah, they certainly are, are doing a great job and being the voice of all those recreational water users. Is there any sort of particular messages that, that we haven't covered that, that you'd particularly want to cover and, and get across? I think the idea that possibly people go out paddle boarding and they don't sometimes appreciate what's underneath them mm. they, they don't realize because maybe the water's quite murky that there's all manner of life swimming around them and a lot of people obviously take up paddle boarding because they like the immersive nature within that they, they like to immerse themselves within nature mm. And I think if they knew all the wonderful things that were swimming around underneath them, that might even help the experience more. Like for just off the coast here in Portsmouth, there could be many numbers of different species of whales and dolphins, which all give off various different clicks and whistles. And probably if you had had something that could detect the sound underneath your board, you would be able to know that somewhere out there where you were, there was these wonderful creatures swimming around with you. Incredible. And and something that I've just noticed relatively recently is the increase in seal activity as well. It's not something that I've been aware of. They seem to be spreading even you know, wider across the, the, the coastline and they're sort of regular groups. It, it, is that down to a, an increase in uh, improving fish stock or, or is it just something I hadn't been aware of and have always been there? I think certainly where we are on the south coast, there has been an increase in some seal numbers. I, I don't think people are particularly sure what the reason is just yet. But it just reminds me of another interesting component of what we're trying to do at the University of Portsmouth is also try and educate people in, in what is responsible supping as well. And over time, we hope to develop some guidance of what is the most appropriate way of interacting with the wildlife. Cause it's great that people are getting out and seeing these seals around our harbours, but obviously we don't want them getting too close and scaring them, particularly during breeding seasons when they're with their cubs and things as well. That, that's something hopefully that we'll develop over time and that responsible supping comes into sort of whether it be birds nesting as well. And also if you're supping in rivers and if you're interchanging between rivers, we do quite a lot with invasive species as well. And that, that is one concern which was the anglers know quite well now because there's been campaigns by various different bodies to get them to clean down their equipment in between changing rivers and lakes and ponds and things. And it's probably that message needs to come across stronger for, for the suppers as well. 
definitely. Yeah, definitely seen it out there, but it it, it is a, a lesser known thing. So can you explain exactly what the risk is there if you're moving from watercourse to watercourse and uh, you haven't cleaned your board down? There are a number of species that have come in to the UK. Obviously, we're in Ireland and some of them come in on shipping. Some of them come in through other different types of freight. They either get into our estuaries or into our rivers and they can spread quite quickly and have quite devastating effects by eradicating our own wildlife in the rivers. And it breaks up the food chain, if you like, slightly and the links between the food webs. A typical example is little shrimp, a little amphipods, and they were lovely termed killer shrimp and demon shrimp. And are they've completely eradicated our own native shrimp in some parts of England and are spreading quite rapidly throughout our river and canal networks. So if you were going in one river where it had these invasive shrimp and then transferred your paddleboard to another one, unknowingly transferring these animals, you may be increasing the spread and the damage that those organisms cause as well. So it's getting those messages across, but at the same time, um, not trying to be a spoil sport and stopping people from the very enjoyment of what they're doing is immersing themselves in nature as well. So it's trying to get that balance point of saying, yes, do get in the water, go and enjoy all that lovely nature, but hopefully try and do it responsibly as well. Absolutely. And and it's a theme that we've revisited here many times, not particularly since lockdown, where people don't have that diversity of activity to do confined to their local area. And it's about, do you go wide and visit all these fantastic places? No, we don't have the opportunity to do that. Instead, we go deep. So that gives us the opportunity to explore our local area in a bit more depth and also to understand more about that, which obviously includes the the marine environment and understanding more about the the animals and and wildlife that, that lives locally. Brilliant stuff. And so so if I was to as a layman, if I was to want to find out more about the marine environment and so on, are there any resources that would be really useful to to do well I hesitate to use this uh, metaphor but a deep dive into into the marine environment um, there's lots of good societies around marine biology there is a whole wealth of information there obviously on the internet it's one of those things that you don't struggle to get people's attention with marine biology because we've had david attenborough and, and wonderful wildlife programs over the years captivating people's uh, attention and their enthusiasm for the subject so there is huge wealth of information out there and, and people are are generally very knowledgeable in that area just because they've immersed themselves in, in, in so much wildlife programs over the years themselves. So you've spent many years looking at in detail the marine environment and there's a lot of talk and about Blue Mind and so on. What, what is it that, that you particularly like about um, your area of, of study? I think it's, I'm very fortunate to mix my hobbies and and my career passions together. I guess like many people have a great feeling after I've been out in the field sampling just because I'm I'm in nature. And I guess that's where it comes on to the, the other elements of what my colleagues are doing at the University of Portsmouth in terms of mental well-being and, and, and physical and mental benefits of supping as well. And and I guess they'll explain a little bit more about that. 
But yeah, just being out there in nature, having your office as the ocean is, is a very nice place to be. That's the dream. And in terms of your SUP journey, you've taken to it clearly. What sort of aspirations do you have? And obviously we can assume when all restrictions have been lifted, how, how do you see your SUP experience developing? Next up for me is a hard board. I've really enjoyed playing on the ISUPs over the last year. But yeah, I definitely want to get myself a hard board and I want to try surfing with the paddle boards as well. I'm just intrigued to know how good I will be and and yeah, what it's like maneuvering a 10 foot board as opposed to a six foot four super thin board that I used to surf. So, Well, thanks, Alex. I learned a lot in that chat and there were some really good reminders in there, particularly about washing boards off. And next, I got to speak to Heather Massey and Zoe Sainer, who are part of the School of Sports, Health and Exercise Sciences. And I started by asking Heather about her role at the university. Well, I work in the Extreme Environments Laboratory within the School of Sports, Health and Exercise Sciences. And my role is primarily looking at the physical and physiological responses to extreme environments. And funnily enough, being in the sea on a stand-up paddleboard can still be considered an extreme environment. How did you discover stand-up paddling? Well, I'm an open water swimmer by trade. And I have been doing swimming for long periods of time. And I've recently started helping others to try to achieve their long distance swimming goals. So I took up paddleboarding to help support them in their swimming. I can be clearly seen by other water traffic. And it's very easy to keep up with the swimmers on a stand up paddleboard. It doesn't mean I have to sit down for long periods of time, which I'm clearly trying to avoid at the moment. So It's only really this last summer that I took up stand-up paddleboarding, but I've thoroughly enjoyed it and I've been on the water a fair amount on the paddleboard. It's a great platform, isn't it? I know the Surf Lifesavers use it. I've just done an interview with a chap who started off in a similar way to you, um, just standing above the water and being able to see what's going on. But you've been quite modest there, Heather, because you mentioned you're an open water swimmer by trade. You've done some pretty meaty swims, haven't you? Do you want to just tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, okay. (laughs) I've swum the length of Windermere. I've swum from Jersey to France and then round Jersey and also completed an English Channel relay uh, swim and a solo swim as well. So yeah, okay. I've done a fair fair bit of swimming. And coming to you, Zoe, again, an absolutely stellar sporting background there and one that got a particular affinity to. You're an international rugby player. Retired. Recently retired, yeah. So I'm now learning how to be a non-rugby player. But yeah, I had a very good, amazing few years on my crazy rugby journey because if you've read a little bit about my background, I was one of the few who came really late, actually, so... Not until I was doing my kind of MSc studies had I even touched the rugby ball or knew any of the rules. <laughs> but yeah, fantastic few years. And what's your sub background? Yeah, so it was actually kind of about four or five years ago now, and I was doing some preparation for 
my PhD exam and I'd kind of moved to Portsmouth. I needed to get away. So I did what most sensible people do and booked a Nielsen holiday. Um, and I popped away to Turkey for two weeks and on breaks from studying physiology, I learned to windsurf, learned to suck and absolutely loved it. Yeah, I was I was kind of hooked. I'd, I'd not been much of a water baby in terms of outdoor swimming or outdoor paddleboarding or anything previously. Um, but yeah, absolutely hooked and came back to Portsmouth and said, this is something that I need to do a little bit more of. And and similarly to you, obviously spending a long time playing rugby, but coming to paddleboarding for me very late, but immediately got hooked by it. So yeah, I totally, uh, I totally understand. So Heather, um, University of Portsmouth, there's three of you there. I'm sure there's more really committed to stand up paddling and you've combined your resources to to conduct the research that's currently going on and which obviously we'll have uh, links to in the show notes but can you tell me a bit about how you kicked off this this whole combined study around SUP? Well we we're really interested in the rise of the blue gym and so that's exercise outdoors in blue spaces like going down to the beach or close to waterways and it was really a combination of Alex and Zoe getting in contact with myself and coming up with the idea of looking into the impact that that supping has on people that sup and and I've done some open water swimming studies, which are very similar, looking at the mental health and well-being of open water swimmers, both novices and more experienced swimmers. So it's really combining our areas for best effect. And you've done some really interesting studies here. And some people tend to be water people generally, and often they go across disciplines. So just because people stand up paddleboard, it doesn't mean to say they're not interested in other areas. But I was reading a really interesting study in the British Medical Journal about a woman suffering from depression on antidepressants. And basically after a, a programme weekly open water swimming, cold open water swimming that led to to massive improvement in her symptoms and and her prognosis and continued recovery now obviously that this is i guess one person but that was something that really stood out to me is there anything you can tell me um, about that that perhaps everyday person can can use in their everyday life well yeah her experiences have been mirrored by a number of people and they're what we call anecdotal evidence and we're starting to build up quite a portfolio of this anecdotal evidence. Now it doesn't mean that open water swimming or supping will improve everybody's mental health but it's very interesting the evidence around blue space having some impact on mental health. So this this lady that we were approached to work with, with the BBC, undertook some regular open water swims with a coach uh, who was trained to look after her and just to introduce her to the safety aspects of the swimming as well, so she could build confidence. Now, we're not entirely sure why her experience or the experiences of others have shown improvements in mental health and well-being. We think it could be a, a combination of many different factors. So it could be the fact that it's cold water and some of the physiological challenges which occur as a consequence of that. Or it could well be that it is a challenge and 
they've achieved their goal. So that is actually quite a good psychological reminder that they are able to do things, that they can meet goals. It's distracting. It's a sociable activity, getting them out into meeting different people and new people at different groups, meeting like-minded people. And so there's a number of different physiological, psychological and sociological factors that may combine within this swimming or supping that may combine to improve or reduce symptoms of poor mental health. And and are there any plans to extend this study to maybe pull some of those factors out to to see whether or not uh, you can identify the, the, the big drivers of this? Yes, we are in the planning stages of such studies at the moment. We have a further study out that was published later last year that involved a group of um, novice open water swimmers conducting a a programme of novice introductory swims. And we we found over the period of time that their mood and well-being gradually improved. And we found reductions in negative mood states and improved positive mood states throughout that period of time. So we're going to try and further tease out the the combination of factors. But you can imagine there's quite a large number of factors there. So it's going to be multiple studies uh, in which we uh, have to undertake to work out what impact these various factors are having. And it may be that there are different different factors that impact different people. Mm-hmm. There's an, another study which interested me particularly because during the winter I like going surfing and generally the best surf days are the ones that are, are very, very cold. And uh, in terms of hands and feet and cold exposure, it's something that, that I really struggle with. And I know that this is something that, that you've looked at in a bit of detail. Now, I don't know whether more exposure to cold actually helps my hands recover or not. I know there are theories that, you know, if you expose yourself to like cold temperatures on a regular basis, then that helps, you know, you recover. But just tell me a bit about that study and and what sort of conclusions you, you came to. Well, we know with repeated exposure to cold water that you can uh, adapt by what you call an insulative adaptation. And that basically is where the blood is withdrawn from the surface of the skin more rapidly and it sits within the centre of the body. And so that by that way, you maintain your deep body temperature uh, for longer without resulting in hypothermia, a cold, deep body. Um, Now, This consequently means that the fingers, uh, toes, extremities are going to become colder more quickly. And this can actually increase the risk of a non-freezing cold injury occurring because of this uh, reduction in blood flow to the surface of the skin. Now, we've done some very small scale studies looking at people that swim in ice cold waters, ice swimmers that may do ice miles, for instance. So they swim a whole mile in water that's less than five degrees Celsius. So they're in for between 20 to 45 minutes in a single swimming costume, hat and goggles. So no protection from the environment at all. And what we see is some big variability in the responses of the uh, the superficial blood vessels to the stimulus of of being in cold water and also to the rewarming stimulus. Um, So it's quite interesting that these uh, recreationally uh, exposed individuals uh, appear to have no uh, damage to the blood vessels themselves in comparison to um, other 
uh, groups or military people that may be exposed for much longer durations. Um, so it, it's very interesting, but it's still in its infancy, this work. And so we do need to progress it further to look at some of the potential reasons for this. Is it due to the, the shorter durations of exposure or are we selecting out those individuals uh, that, that are, are likely to have uh, problems if they go into cold water for a long period of time? be quite useful to it would be it would be quite useful and interesting to also conduct a similar study on a group of surfers that wore neoprene um, in the winter and exposed themselves to very cold temperatures so that would be of interest as well to add a, another group to that study mm, absolutely i mean it's one of the, the really odd things and um, so i don't know whether you've had this experience but uh, cold blustery um day going out to play rugby obviously in shorts you don't really fancy it and then five minutes you know after running around a bit you're nice and, and toasty again are there any recommendations you could make for to stand up paddlers in terms of keeping fingers and and toes nice and warm other than obviously putting lots of layers on i mean if your core body is nice and hot would that help your extremities as well um, yes, definitely. Uh, keeping the deep body warm, keeping your core warm will actually help the uh, blood supply to the surface of the skin. Because when you've got a warm, deep body, the blood flow to the surface of the skin will be greater. So actually keeping yourself warm by, by vigorous exercise is a great way to keep those extremities nice and warm. Put your neoprene gloves and booties on, go out and paddleboard, keep that exercise level up so that you keep the heat production going and you'll gradually start to you'll keep the, the deep body warm and gradually the blood vessels to the surface of the skin will reopen and start to rewarm those fingers and toes. That uh, sounds like very, very good advice. So Zoe, could you just explain your role at the University of Portsmouth and the areas that you uh, you focus on yeah absolutely so so first and foremost I have the huge pleasure and and I say it's a pleasure because it really is we we have a fantastic team that's ever growing um, in the School of Sport Health and Exercise Sciences so my pleasure is to lead the physical activity health and rehabilitation thematic research group and then also within that we have a smaller group who focus a bit more on clinical health and rehab within that we span everything from young kids all the way up to older adults, and then all of us in between that. Focus a lot on people with underlying chronic health conditions, so be that physical and or mental. And really a big focus for us is that exercise is medicine. So whether we're doing work in the local hospitals and we're looking at exercise testing or training, or this kind of stuff, the sub-science where we're out on the water and we're doing this kind of survey research, the kind of key theme that runs through pretty much everything within our group is the exercise is fantastic. We need to find ways that it's safe and appropriate for everybody to do so they can realise the benefits. And, you know, as you've mentioned, Simon, my background in rugby, that's been the last kind of few years. But sport for me and exercise and generally being physically active are, are such a huge thing that I've enjoyed from little me that <laughs> could walk around to six foot three me now. So that, that's my role really within the school. And then, like you've mentioned already, yeah, I, I have a huge... Um, interest in sport and I've always been a big advocate as a rugby player in trying to use that as a kind of vehicle to promote the benefits of not only physical activity in terms of health benefits but also you know team sports and doing stuff in a group I know the sub community 
not during this current pandemic, but generally there's this big kind of group ethos. And, and that's something that really attracted me to SUP as well. Well, it's funny you should say that because that leads into to my theory. And uh, as a humanities student, clearly I'm not uh, speaking with the benefits of science here, but I've seen quite a high number of rugby players joining the sport. And I've got a couple of theories about why that might be. First of all, rugby players, the majority of them tend to be dealing with some sort of lower limb injury, mostly sort of knees and ankles. So it's quite an attractive way to to not stress those particular joints and to also develop cardio and flexibility and obviously the core as well. And the other thing which you just mentioned the, the aloha spirit, you know, mutual affection and regard for others, which, you know, I, I guess people wouldn't recognise if they haven't played rugby and been involved in the culture. But it, it's definitely there. You definitely see it very tangibly in the support. And, and I think that's something that's really shared with the SUP community. And I was kind of thinking about commonalities and I was thinking, well, the Pacific Islanders are, are really enthusiastic rugby players. And also that's where SUP was created that was where SUP grew up and so obviously if the University of Portsmouth do want to do any studies into this I would like to volunteer as as leading the study possibly in Fiji or, or Samoa. And Simon I tell you what I will join you there as well <laughs> but I, I think I totally agree with your theory you know in terms of my own personal journey I retired in August, just several months back, with a lower limb injury. Um, still slowly rehabbing that, but my journey into SUP, you know, where we live, we're so lucky. We say that we're this kind of great waterfront city, and we really are. To have, you know, 10 minutes drive away coast that you can go out and experience these things is amazing. But as a rugby player, like you said, we always kind of strive for these off-feet conditioning alternatives to give the legs a little bit of a rest when you aren't broken. And at present, the best source of doing that is a ski erg or a ski ergometer in the gym, which if you or anybody that listens to this has had a go on that, it is pretty horrendous. <laughs> Good for physiology and training, but really not that pleasant. So I think the option to go out on the water, embrace nature and do something, like you said, in a group as well, there's many benefits for SUP. And I think generally that group spirit, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think that's the, the rationale for this research. Like Heather said, there's so much anecdotal work out there that everybody can tell you similar stories about their benefits and what they enjoy and, and what SUP or other sporting activities in the water mean to them. But our job as scientists, and again, why I say it's a pleasure, is just to capture this information. And we've just done a little case study, Simon, where you told me your experiences and I've told you mine. but I absolutely agree with that overlap. And I think for me, my my journey of rehabbing my lower limb through the kind of proprioception you get of supping is ongoing and to be continued. <laughs> absolutely. And of course, we talked briefly about the mental health benefits of being out there in nature and just from the exercise. that They're almost limitless, but uh, you'd expect us to be fans of that. Could you Tell us a little bit about the survey that you're carrying out at the moment and the study that you're carrying out with, with Fatstick and the sort of things that you're looking for uh, as part of that. Because one of the things about being such a new sport is, as you said, a lot of the, the feedback is anecdotal 
anecdotal. And I think it, this is a real opportunity for the SUP community to come together and, and support the research and to, to really show that, uh, that the sport is delivering positives in all sorts of directions. Yeah, I'll jump in, Simon, with a little segue, just leading on to put Heather in the spotlight, because whilst we have this fantastic team, it's really Heather that's spearheading this SUP survey. But just to give a bit of insight into the kind of data we're seeing generally, we've been doing research since what we now call Lockdown 1 started nearly a year ago, looking at general population level data in terms of people's physical activity, their well-being and their mental health. So we can't do in laboratory kind of research now but the cool thing about this kind of thing we're all living through is people are number one very collaborative two want to answer questions and really want to work together so we've been looking at people's behavior and we showed even in a short kind of snapshot from when we had much nicer weather when lockdown one started that physical activity was so important those people had what we call a negative behavior change so essentially they do less activity than they were they were the people who even a pretty acute period into that lockdown were experiencing quite poor mental health and that's kind of a good segue because this survey that Heather's leading fantastically on at the moment that like we said we would love more people from the sub community to take part in that's really honing in on stand-up paddleboarding the exposure to this fantastic blue gym and whether people are benefiting because anecdotally you know anybody that lives near a coast or traveled there anytime particularly during the summer months saw many people out there on a stand-up paddleboard so summary we're trying to capture the kind of behaviors that people were doing there but within that wider remit and context of capturing people's physical activity behaviors getting insight into their kind of well-being mental health and really this is step one of hopefully a fantastic program of research between ourselves who are sport and exercise scientists and the guys are marine scientists and the fantastic guys at Fat Sticks. So if Heather doesn't mind, I'm going to hand over to her just to give a few more details on what the survey involves and some of those kind of cool and really interesting outcomes that we capture doing this kind of online research. Thanks, Zoe. <laughs> so, yeah, we really want to hear from anybody that sups. We want to hear from people that took it up last summer, that uh, has been supping for many years. We want to hear about people's experiences of supping, how their supping behaviour has changed and how supping has influenced their physical and mental health. And that's really what this survey is all about. And I've done the survey. It's very, very quick. There are a few questions in there, but it doesn't take long at all. And it will really deliver some benefits and some real insights, which will help us all to understand the sport and particularly how people have been paddling over this last really bizarre year that we've had. I agree. We saw a big explosion of people going to the beaches uh, and going to water-based environments last spring and summer as we weren't able to go abroad. So we've had a big explosion in water-based activities, be that supping, canoeing, kayaking, open water swimming. It would be great to hear how their approach to being in this blue environment has really influenced their physical and mental well-being. So in terms of, of the, the study, we're linking it to the show notes, but I know you guys also um, do some podcasting yourself. Heather, tell me a bit about your podcast, because I've had a listen to a few episodes and there's some really fascinating stuff in there. 
I'm really an amateur in comparison to you there, Simon. I started podcasting because I wanted to introduce my students on my extreme environments courses to some of the really cool people that I get to meet as part of my job. And the students don't often get to meet these people. And so I just started to record conversations that I was having with some of the people that I got involved with. So I managed to interview some ice swimmers. I've interviewed somebody that walked the rabbit proof fence in Australia and talking about their experiences of the environments that they were in. I've also interviewed Josh Llewellyn Jones, who Zoe knows well, and last year completed an epic challenge where he swam 21 miles in a pool in Dover. Then he cycled from Dover to London and then ran, ran from London to Cardiff, all in the space of five days. And yeah, it was an epic journey and it was really a pleasure to speak to him, but also to uh, the rest of the people that I've uh, spoken to. So I've also spoken to people that have um, run the Marathon de Saab, people that have run the North Pole Marathon. So a real range of an eclectic mix of people. So inevitably, with these sort of this extreme physiology, um, well, inevitably, whenever I'm involved, um, I've raised the name of Wim Hof, who's very much of the moment in terms of cold exposure and breathing and so on. Have you seen any of his work? Do you have any views on it? I don't have any strong views on it. What I've, I'm more interested in making sure that if people are going into cold environments or uh, cold air or cold water, that they take uh, appropriate uh, care and and, are, and do things safely. So having knowledge of what the environment involves, so not just the, the fact that it's cold, but what local conditions are involved, be aware of what's going to happen to their body. So know about the cold shock response if you're going into cold water. If you're in cold there, make sure that you know about some of the physiological problems that are associated with going into a cold air environment. Take appropriate steps to ensure that um, you stay uh, safe and well in those environments. And you've been involved in the RNNI um, campaign around floating. So obviously, all stand up paddle boarders should expect to go into the water at any time and indeed whenever you're near the water. But just tell me a little bit about your research because if you fall in the water, you mentioned the cold water shock effect and there is a, a period where you've obviously got to stabilise your breath and make sure that you don't in, inhale any water. But there are some other more physical, more tangible advantages in not thrashing around and moving too much when you go in, if you go in fully clothed that you identified? Yeah, absolutely. Now, as you correctly suggest, when you go into cold water, you have this cold shock response. And really to uh, survive that successfully, you need to keep your airway above water. And so the best option is not to swim. Now, a long time ago, our, our laboratory undertook some research, which suggested that those that were able to float or uh, keep their airway above water, were able to swim for longer periods of time in cold water than those that tried to swim straight away. So what we need to do is to get over that cold shock response first. And the best way to do that is by floating on our back. Now, humans on average are more buoyant than water. So we actually float 
uh, on the water surface. Now, the part of the work with the RNLI was to try to prove this to people, to establish what the best way of floating was, and also to suggest that should they be wearing clothing and what clothing should they be wearing? Now, we found that actually, if you're floating in water and it keeps as still as you possibly can, you maintain the buoyancy that you trap within your clothing layers. So the air that's trapped within your clothing helps to keep you afloat. And so actually, you need to move less in order to stay afloat and keep your airway above the uh, water. So whilst you're experiencing that uh, rapid breathing and uncontrollable breathing, you can uh, just lie back in the water, do very little, scull if you have to, with your hands and feet in order to keep your airway above the water. Now, once you've overcome that cold shock response and you're able to uh, talk in full sentences like we are now, then that's the time to start swimming to make your exit if you're unable to straight away. So it's really important that people don't panic. They adopt the floating posture on their back so they're in a nice star shape sculling if they have to, if they don't feel they're as buoyant, but do the minimum they require to stay afloat. And in that way, you'll overcome the cold shock response. You'll then be able to plan your exit for either swimming or uh, climbing up if you're able to. So it's really about making sure that you survive that cold shock response successfully and that you save energy because Floating does not require much energy, whereas swimming requires a large amount of energy. Mm -hmm. That's incredible advice and valuable for anyone spending any time next to the the water. Um, Zoe, um, coming back to you, you've done um, quite a few studies recently and you mentioned earlier on about coronavirus and exercise patterns and how those have changed and how they've affected various levels of society where are you on the conclusions from the first and second lockdown and have you noticed anything interesting in terms of of groups who are say exercising versus not exercising yeah there's really interesting things going on and it continues to change so we've still got our kind of global multi-country study going so that's both guys here who are based in the uk other chaps are over in Ireland. We've got New Zealand data and Australia data. And in lockdown one, there was some interesting um, data about females, particularly in their young 20s, who seem to have a little bit more time to go and be physically active. I think the weather helped as well during some of our first capture points. There was a particularly kind of concerning group, which was our younger males. And I say that's concerning because when we look generally at mental health and well-being data, These are unfortunately groups that we tend to talk about a little bit more in terms of regularity as well. We're currently relaunching a third release of the survey, literally as we speak. And I think we're going to see some pretty different patterns, you know, anecdotally. And when I go out for a very slow retired rugby run these days, I pass about three people compared to the kind of 50 people that I passed back in the summer months. So we definitely know that people are finding it a little bit more challenging And really, that's why I say this is part of a bigger program of research, because at the University of Portsmouth, like I said, there are hugely passionate people who not only have expertise across exercise, intervention, development and implementing this into the community, but also we have a community and 
whether this is the sub community globally or it's our local community on the kind of little island of Portsmouth, people need access and guidance in terms of physical activity that is something that is appropriate to them, but also that they want to do and they're going to adhere to. There's some pretty worrying data actually about how quickly we can lose muscle and how some of the different systems in the body are changing even as quite active people living through this strange time and I'll challenge anybody who has a kind of readily available activity monitor I I use my Garmin because I like to take it out of the water but anything you have available that measures steps to look at if you're working from home for example how many steps you're achieving because who is both a sports scientist and retired, you know, reasonable athlete, I was achieving about 3,000 steps before I actually actioned going for a walk or a run. And they are quite worrying stats when we think about the effect that has on the body, even over a few weeks in terms of deconditioning. Simon, we're nearly a year into this. And that's why I say this latest release where we're capturing winter data, alongside our sub-survey, I think are going to help us really start to understand both seasonal differences and also what do people have access to? Because lots of the novelty wore off in some kind of physical activity as we progress through the summer months. And I think that's one of our big focus areas going forward is what do we need to put in place to facilitate people to be active when they really need to have this kind of behaviour change as we hopefully come out of these challenging times that we've been going through. And that's before I even talk about kind of rehabilitation of of people who've had COVID-19, which is a a whole nother programme of research that we've got running at the moment. Both your areas of study sound fascinating. And of course, as well, the fact that you're looking into SUP in a formal way, which obviously helps all of us going forward. So thank you so much for your time, Heather and Zoe. It's been a great chat. Um, Heather, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, uh, Simon, you can find out more about uh, myself and Zoe from the University of Portsmouth staff uh, profile web pages. I also have a Twitter account and uh, also uh, my podcast is on SoundCloud as well. Brilliant. So we'll link to all of those. Zoe, anything to add? No, just always happy to get a few more Twitter followers, Simon. So I'll give a shout out for that one. And also our research group is on there as well so we'll give that link and already the link to the survey has been shared on that page and again as as it progresses we love to share the data we love to share our findings we love to engage in the communities that you know volunteer and give their time so big cheeky shout out to our twitter page but we'll reward you by updating you on the research findings so as i mentioned at the top of this episode the SUP brand Fatstick had really thrown themselves into this collaboration. And so I had to grab a chat with Andy from the brand itself. But before we hear from him, Alex did have some really nice things to say about Fatstick's involvement and their enthusiasm towards this project. I approached Fatsticks to see whether they might be interested in some of our SUP science ideas. And I, w- I was bowled over by their enthusiasm and their the generosity when it came to taking it forward. They were, they were the first sub company that I came across, which had a, had a really holistic look at what they were trying to achieve as a business in terms of their kind of environmental brand and their efforts to promote supping and, and mental well-being. And then I've had lots of wonderful discussions with the team there. And the more we have, 
the more crazy ideas we seem to come up with. But there's a couple of streams that we've been taking forward, and one of them is in, certainly in the sense of the pure marine biology, one in terms of the mental well-being and the other in terms of ethical business and sort of environmental business. Andy, you've had fantastic relationship with University of Portsmouth and you've got involved in their SUP Science Initiative. How did this relationship start? It was a genuine inquiry from Alex Ford, who's a professor there of marine biology, and he got in contact looking to working with a, a local sub companies try and get things like hydrophones and things like that into the water because they're looking at obviously pollution and we had a chat and his enthusiasm and my love of anything to do with sub met in the middle and it worked and fantastic have got quite an environmental background haven't they you've done quite a lot of work to reduce the carbon footprint just tell us a bit first of all about fatstick and second about that uh, environmental work you've been doing uh, well fatstick was created by reuben may who is who was a surfer from a very young age he suffered with quite a chronic back pain back problem sorry i couldn't surf which caused him to he suffered with depression uh, and the only way that he could deal with that was to get out in the water so he remembered about paddleboarding paddleboarding was about and he basically got his friends to club together some money so he could buy boards directly from a factory and he bought some expected to give the the friends some money back and they saw the boards and decided actually they liked them and they wanted to keep them Ruben saw an opportunity there to create something that he loves and that he can do as a job and actually still have a passion for surfboards are called sticks these are fatter surfboards so hence the name fat stick that's that's how it came about through reuben basically fat sticks definitely gone um, from strength to strength and really developed the brand over the years but something that you've been particularly focused on is the environmental footprint can you just tell us a little bit about how that's developed because i know that you um, launched an initiative to plant a tree for every board sold but i know you've moved it on quite a bit since then yeah well so Obviously, we are in a very beneficial position where we can make decisions and make choices as a brand. So we go, we travel to China to our factory. We we go actually go and visit the people that make our boards. So for ethics purposes, so we can see that obviously it's not a sweatshop. That the people are treated nicely. That it's a nice environment, and also to see what they do and how they do it, um, which gives us a little bit of a, a head start because we get to speak to the the people making the boards and packing them and sending them. So we reduced, removed all our plastic within our ice ups. And that's not just at source as in within the factory. We spoke about our supply chain and saying that the fins come from one factory, the paddles from another and the pumps from another. We've It was a battle, but we managed to get them to ask that everything supplied to the factory where our boards are made have no is not encased in plastic in any way so it comes in boxes and that was a, a big start for us and from there on it was about carbon footprint and thinking about how we can further reduce our carbon footprint which was we now plant a tree for every board sold it's really important because there are things we can do these this is it's a very quick win and a very simple win but it's also very rewarding for the person buying the board or whatever reason they get a tree they they're part of a fat stick forest they're part of something that is actually good for the planet and they did that that's solely down to them which is just feels good absolutely and you've recently got involved in beach cleans yeah so we 
a few years ago, we got together with all the schools on Hailing Island, where I live, to try and educate the kids know exactly what they're doing. The kids are brilliant. It's about educating the kids to educate the parents or educate the older generation who are, are the problem mainly. And the, that was a, a real hit. But sadly, obviously, COVID came along. We were look, we had with Mill Rice Juniors just up the road and we were looking at some regular beach cleans, as in monthly beach cleans. But that obviously was never going to happen over COVID. Looking to get people out and about, which is something that we're keen on for the mental well-being side of things, not just on boards, just getting out there. We decided that half terms here, COVID has meant that a lot of children are in front of screens a lot of the time. And is there a way that we can get them out? And there is a simple way, which is the fact that a beach clean with the two minute beach clean, the guys have been doing an amazing job. They were happy for us to use them as an example. And we now encourage the kids and parents to get out there and clean up their canal, walkway, street, beach. And for every uh, picture they take with them, with uh, the rubbish they picked up, we send them a tree so they get to plant a tree. So the kids get a reward. Plus they also, because the, the tree is not just a case of thanks very much, you planted the tree. It's a case of this is now your tree. You put your name on it. It has your name on it. You can see how your tree is grown in that forest, as in the development of the forest and how much CO2 you're offsetting, the tonnage, and it's brilliant. It, it gives them something to, to focus on and, and a real reward. Brilliant. And I'm sure that ties into their lessons very well as well. Coming back to University of Portsmouth, um, obviously you had the, the personal contact with Alex. What was it specifically about the areas that they were studying that, that interested you and really drove you to get involved? There's the, the old saying, which is don't destroy what you came to enjoy, which is, people have said it from time to time. And I've heard that and that sort of um, resonates because we're on the water. We love the water. It's a big part of what we do. And it's slowly being destroyed the, the ecosystem around it not just in the water but around is just being you know chipped away at. and if we can raise awareness then we can clean it up we and we have i guess we have an obligation to have or to work sorry to make sure that our future generations my kids ruben's kids any kids that are out there to have a, a better planet we've created a problem or our generation or the previous generation now it's for us to be part of the, the tipping point to actually create the, the solution or be part of it at least. So that's what, as soon as Alex talked about the marine biology side of things and pollution, not just as in physical pollution, but things like noise pollution, seriously sucked me in and he's very passionate about what he does. It's only the fact that the, the, the whole thing after Alex became Heather Massey and Zoe Sainer, who, who are both into the sports science side of things, and that was something we were pushing where we did during lockdown. I did an interview on YouTube, invited anyone who wanted to talk about mental health and how SUPS helped them. And I had people come to me and allowed me to ask them questions about how SUP has helped them with their mental health. And I had someone with depression and anxiety, someone who was uh, in an abusive relationship and suffered with, with serious anxiety. And that led us to speak to the university from the side of mental health and SUP and trying to encourage people to get out there and show just how beneficial it can be mentally as well as physically. So a massive thank you to Alex, Heather, Zoe and Andy. 
And if you're listening to this in March 2021, then you still have time to complete the survey and be part of this SUP collaboration and also help research into this incredible sport. And please check out the show notes for the link. So that's this week's episode wrapped. If you haven't already, then please like our page on Facebook or Instagram. And one thing you could do to really help us, if you have got any benefits from any of our episodes, is to share or recommend us on a SUP Facebook group. So that word spreads and more people get to hear about us. Mahalo and see you in the next episode where we've got a real leader in the SUP world joining me for a really interesting chat. Take care. Thank you for listening to SUP FM, the number one podcast for stand-up paddlers wherever you are. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. Until then, we'll see you on the water.